Today's episode of the Film State Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. God, show me the way because the devil's trying to break me down. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. God damn it, Brian. <laughs> Look, up until like two minutes ago, it was going to be a hymn that I remember from church <laughs> that like is just ingrained in my memory. So you should be happy that I switched it up and did Conway instead. Okay. <laughs> sure. We also have Bill Graham. I am currently adding this to my Spotify workout playlist. I, <laughs> I forgot how good this song is. This song rocks. This song like made the Jarhead trailer. Am I wrong? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And a special guest with us today to talk about A Hidden Life, the newest film from writer director Terrence Malick. It's Josh Cabrita. Hello, Josh. Did I say your name correctly? That's correct. Yeah, oh, sweet. <laughs> as I, I nailed, as I leaped into it, I was like, "Oh, I didn't confirm this at all." <laughs> uh, no, Josh, it is great perfect. to have you here with us today. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience by telling them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so I am a freelance film critic part time. Uh, write for Cinemascope. Movie, uh, reverse shot occasionally, and at the moment, I'm working as a programming intern at the Vancouver International Film Festival, and that pretty well eats up all my time. <laughs> all right. And we, of course, are here today to talk about the newest film from writer director Terrence Malick. It's a hidden life. It is. I don't even know if it's still out in theaters, honestly. We might have waited way too long to do this. I, how has the Canadian release uh, been for a hidden life, Josh? Because it... <laughs> It disappeared pretty quickly here. It lasted in Vancouver for two weeks uh, and then was promptly taken out from the one multiplex that it was playing here. Is this, (laughs) this is, uh, let's, uh, is this a a victim of the, the Fox Disney thing? Like, is that, is that what we're, or did like, cause Searchlight acquired this after doing like pretty good with the tree of life. Yeah. And then this movie was just like, I didn't see a goddamn word about this thing in the run up, you know, that I wasn't feverishly searching sure. for, you know? And it's a Even awards- like a prestige mode, like very like uh, awards friendly trailer. I don't I don't even think there was something like that that was like playing incessantly or anything. No, let's, and it's let's let's be honest though, like most of his other films in the last few what, the last five years or whatever um have had some pretty big names attached to them this one has no one really but like it's different when you've got like ryan gosling and and rudy mara and it's about like sure. the austin music scene and all that stuff you know because those people are names but i don't know that they're draws but this is a a world war ii epic that talks about like standing up to the rising fascism around you, even though it doesn't directly negatively impact you personally. Like if this movie were just called a timely parable. <laughs> so it, it feels weird to me that like it got nothing. 
Like not a single goddamn thing. It, it even like had a moment where I didn't even know if we were going to get the screeners for this in time for our awards consideration. And that just seems I, uh, ridiculous. I think as soon as they, they thought that it had no potential for award season, they pretty well cut all the resources that they had put to it for an awards release. Like I know in September and October, the film played a lot of audience festivals across North America, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't expect of like a title this large. So they really did try in the beginning anyway to get it in front of people. Like I know we had no trouble getting it at VIF, but then in those few months between like Oct- the end of October when those audience festivals end and the beginning of December, I guess they knew that the like critical word on it wasn't strong enough to merit any like awards in critic circles and awards consideration for the Oscars. So I assume they just buried it after that because they had initially acquired it at Cannes for far too much money. (laughs) Which is what they did with Tree of Life. And they, like I said, they were still seemed like they were able to do something with that. A Hidden Life uh, has 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if that means anything. I certainly don't know if that's like mostly mixed (laughs) positive that they're just counting as fresh. Rotten Tomatoes is a nightmare. Um, But before we get into any more talk of A Hidden Life, (laughs) though clearly I'm very, very eager to talk about this. The usual stuff up front. Find us on Twitter at Film State Show, Facebook, The Film State Show. Go on your uh, podcast app on iTunes or whatever. Give us a comment and rating. And, um, of course, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Film State Show. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help us to create more great content for you to enjoy. You also help support us when we go and see these movies and stuff. So, again, that's patreon.com slash The Film Stage Show. And... We are brought to you by Movie, the online streaming cinema, where every day their fantabulous curators bring you a brand new film to watch and enjoy, and you have 30 days to watch before it disappears, so you have a constantly rotating selection of films, highly curated, and uh, you've got a little bit of a pressure cooker on you so that you actually feel like you should watch them <laughs> instead of just adding them to your list and then going back to binge-watching Justified. <clears throat> There's, not speaking from any experience there, are no, you, Brian? No. But of course, how, <laughs> no, of course not. I want to highlight a series they have going. Uh, it's to, oh no, <laughs> I was looking at my phone and for some reason Siri decided to open up. Anyway, uh, they have a series going on now called uh, Takeshi Kita- Kitano, Destroy All Yakuza. And I want to highlight this one film from 1989. It is called Violent Cop. And if you are not already sold on this, here's the synopsis. Rogue homicide detective Azuma takes on a sadistic crime syndicate only to discover widespread internal corruption in the police force. Facing criminal charges for his dirty, hairy type methods, Azuma finds himself caught in a web of betrayal that sends him on a bloody trail of vengeance. Could not be more different from a hidden life, but my God, does that sound amazing. It was added only a few days ago, so you have about 29 days to watch. They've also got their BYNWR series going on with one shocking moment. No budget auteur Ted V. Milkels, uh, who previously made something called The Astro Zombies and Blood Orgy of the She-Devils, <laughs> ventures into lurid melodrama the story of an executive and his new bio wife arriving in a new town and tangling with the S&M Tinge gang from the local exotic nightclub, leading to all manner of duos and triads. All right, that sounds kind of great. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of 
a lot of good stuff on right now. So you can check all those out for free by going to MUBI.com slash filmstage. That is MUBI.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial of movie. So do that. Um, and that is it. Uh, anything else to talk about, gentlemen, before we launch into our review of Hidden Life? Uh, I don't I don't think so. Uh, you got a few days left still on, uh, I, I think we've mentioned Tower and Black Mother, which are two kind of, uh, well, Black Mother isn't really a doc, but I, either way, both those films, you have a, a, about a week or so left on uh, to watch. And uh, I think they're both uh, worth the time. All right. Excellent. So that's it. Uh, let's now jump into our feature review, which again is A Hidden Life, the newest film from writer-director Terrence Malick. This film tells the true story of Austrian Franz Jagerstadter, who is a conscientious objector during World War II, who decides that he cannot bear to be a part of the German war machine movie tracks his decision-making process and the fallout from that choice and uh, like i said it might not even be in theaters anymore but we are talking about it because <laughs> i am in charge of this podcast to some extent and it is a terrence malick film here is the trailer remember the day when we first met I remember that motorcycle, my best dress. You looked at me and I knew how simple life was then. All right. Time has come to talk about a hidden life. This movie stars August Deal as Franz Jagerstadter. And Valerie Patchner as Fanny Augerstadter. And, um, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's see what we thought. We begin, as always, with our spoiler-free thoughts. Though, again, this is a true story, so the concept of spoilers <laughs> seems a little absurd. <laughs> and we begin with our guest, Josh Brita. What did you think of A Hidden Life? Um, all right. Uh, I love A Hidden Life. <laughs> uh it's only my second favorite Terrence Malick movie of this decade, but that's only because the tree of life is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I, I will say on first viewing, I was quite surprised by this film. Um, I felt like the last few Terrence Malick films, I had gotten a handle on that style and knew what his purposes were. And this film felt to me like a, a drastic recalibration from him. And so it really, it took me like a month to think through this film. It, uh, yeah. It threw me for a loop. Uh, All right. Michael Snydell, what are your thoughts on a hidden life? Yeah, I uh, really like this film, but I think, um, I, I think the narrative has been uh, both really misleading uh, and and very interesting. Like uh, like like Josh. Like I feel like I, I I somewhat had a handle on kind of the is it quadrilogy? Is that the word I'm looking for <laughs> of like modern life films that uh, Malik has has done recently? And with are the you, exception you, of wait, a quadrilogy. Does that mean that you count Tree of Life as one of his 
modern films just because there's the Sean Penn parts? I guess I kind of do. Is, is that a is that a controversial? <laughs> I think that's a take. <laughs> all right, all right. Wasn't meant to have an uh, to have a take quite this soon. But my point being that, like, other than song to song, which is really the only one I didn't particularly um, gravitate uh, to or find the right wavelength with, like his uh, his latter day. His latter day films have always been interesting to me, but it, it was kind of fascinating that at least the narrative with this film back when it was called uh, Radigan uh, is that, you know, it was his first film without uh, Lubeski, even though it is uh, Lubeski's um, cameraman. Uh, uh, is that Yorahe, maybe? I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but uh, George uh, Widmer. I think it's George. The, is it George? Okay. I, either way, my yeah. point being, though, is I think it's fascinating because so much of the um, initial festival reaction was talking about how this is either a comeback for him or a return to narrative and stuff. And, and I think that's really fascinating and, and I think is um, it makes it sound like this is a much more traditional narrative than it is. I think what I ultimately find so interesting about this film is the way that it resists, um, it resists any obvious, uh, martyr narratives while also being very like characteristically didactic. I, I, I think what I ultimately, struggle and find so uh, interesting about this film is just how comparatively mild it is for um, a, a film that you'd ex- expect about someone who is is suffering. Like at least for the first, I'm going to say the first hour and a half, the, the uh, imprisonment that, um, that uh, Franz faces is it, it's like, it, it's, it's so mild compared to what we expect of the imagery almost of World War II films. Like it's not an obvious like concentration camp he's sent to. And it, it, it I just really love the way that this keeps resisting uh, obvious ideas about its two environments of this pastoral village and this prison. And um the the prison is not like this obvious dour place. It's a place that it has like its own, it is shot with its own sense of beauty. It, it has that like sensory immediacy that, that is very, uh, again, characteristic of his last few films. But um, I, I kind of love the way that this just continues to, pose a question that it very much knows the answer to but still nonetheless keeps posing it and in a way like almost just keeps complicating the uh the complete lack of answer (laughs) that franz like franz refuses to ever uh he's diffuse throughout the entire film and um yeah, there's there's a lot more I want to talk about, but I, I the best way to say this is I I just yeah, I, I like the way that 
this could so easily be, you know, a Schindler's list or like something that so clearly delineates his actions as, uh, you know, a, a moral imperative. And that's not, that's not really what it is. <laughs> and, uh, I'm very worried that at some point it's going to sound like I'm, sympathetic to nazis on this episode so this is this is gonna be fun <laughs> just so glad that you got that out of the way up oh, front. yeah yeah y- you know <clears throat> good times all right bill graham what did you think of a hidden life um so uh, i'll admit that i'm not the biggest uh malik fan um i to be honest, I haven't seen that many of his films, um, even his latest output. I think the last thing I saw from him was A Tree of Life. Um, it's not necessarily that I am avoiding his films. It just happened to be that those were the podcasts that I skipped uh, for <laughs> the films days for some reason. Um, anyways, uh, I really enjoyed this film. I was worried, obviously, uh, that it had a three-hour runtime, as a lot of Malick films uh, generally uh, uh, take up a lot of time, we shall say. Um, although, I guess his output lately has been a little bit shorter, um, but that may be part of kind of the uh, lack of scripts and kind of things like that. He's uh, He understands, I think, that if he doesn't have like a, a through line, a straight narrative that uh, a three hour movie of that may not be as easy to sustain. Um, this one definitely has a script. It has a through line. Um, it is absolutely beautiful to look at. Um, the scenery that he finds here is just absolutely stunning. And, I really fell for this guy that just simply did not want to participate in a war that all of his fellow countrymen seemed to kind of either begrudgingly or full on jump into. And, um, I don't know. Th- this is going to be a weird film to talk about because I don't know what kind of things that we can talk about pre-spoilers or if there are even spoilers for this film. Um, yeah, the, 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 I guess the spoilers in the film are only there if you wonder how the Nazis would treat someone who said, I don't feel like fighting for you. Yes. <laughs> um, seems like asked answered. Sure. Uh, it's definitely a interesting film. Um that I'm looking forward to talking more about, but uh, yeah, I, I just found it beautiful and I found the performances across the board, just flat out awesome. And uh, I don't know if this is going to make my top 10, but it's, it's definitely something that I, I'll probably continue to think about for a little bit. All right. As for me, I feel like devotees of this show will not find it at all surprising when i say that i loved this movie um i think what's interesting for me personally is just the fact that it's it's not just that like this movie i find to be you know beautiful and poetic and meaningful in the way that most uh terrence malick films uh, resonate with me but like this movie was like almost sort of responsible for like a full-on renewal of like my catholic faith upon seeing it 
it's it's an incredible uh, so like we we've talked before about how like um films that are viewed as like christian cinema are usually pretty not great (laughs) um i'm thinking of like heaven is for real pennies from heaven is that the one where the kid falls in the tree or something i think you're thinking of are you thinking the steve martin uh adaptation of the play i don't think pennies from heaven is it's like miracles from heaven or something i think jennifer garner that's the one that's yeah that's it okay (laughs) is that the one about the tree and the kid almost dying or something and yeah i was like yeah i just hear like from heaven and i'm like well it's probably pennies we're talking about right it's pennies (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it is miracles from heaven okay good good looking out josh uh but like it's it's stuff like that where it's not about the act of having faith and what that means and how you keep it alive. It's, it's this really didactic sort of like, you just need to have faith and you need to defend it at all costs. And it's, it's all about like how just like constant bullheadedness and cruelty sometimes is like the best way to exercise your Christian faith. And so to find this movie where Malik seems to truly be struggling with like, why, why are we doing this? Like, what's the, like, what's the point? Like if, if, if no one's going to know what you did and if it's only going to hurt the people you love, like what is the true earthly good of it? And I, um, I found, cause like you see certain movies where like there's a Christian bent to it and the character stands up and like damns everyone around them and like waves their, you know, righteousness in people's faces. And you're supposed to be like, Yes, yes, too true. We should all stand up in a public forum and dress down everyone who refuses to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this movie goes the opposite way and actually kind of looks at people who are like that and the way that the church is kind of organized for its followers and um, and takes it to task and kind of really tries to find the true earnest meaning of what, you know, at least a Catholic religious faith should be. And so that was, uh, that was really interesting for me to see. I love movies like this, like silence that really take the doubt and the uncertainty and the seeming nonsensical nature of religious faith and examine it and then try to see what possible good there could be from having it. I, I, Brian, I've seen a few people say that uh, for in both positive and negative ways, this does feel like the most explicitly Christian expression um, of Malik's uh, – sorry, of Malik's Christianity. D- d- do you agree with that? I think only insofar as because it's like a man who was literally beatified by the Catholic Church recently. <laughs> sure. It's it it is explicitly Christian. It's so far as this this is a man who literally was driven by his religious faith to do the thing that he did. But I think that the Tree of Life is an explicitly Christian movie. Uh, even though sure. I've heard people or I've seen people's like faces when I say that. Um, but like that movie literally starts off with a quote from the Bible, and it it exercises the entirety of. The- like, human existence right, not even human existence it starts at the beginning of the universe and then gives us a vision <laughs> of the heat death of the universe and then it zeroes in on this one little family 
And it's like, yeah, you have tragedy, but like, God, like there's such a bigger thing going on. Like, how can you possibly claim to know or understand what's going on? And then I guess, spoiler alerts for the Tree of Life, it ends with like a vision of the afterlife wherein you are reunited with the people who mattered to you. I mean, if that's not an explicitly Christian movie, I don't know what it is. And and I think that in that movie, like the mother and the father are kind of the two sides of that. You know, the mother is, uh, you know, as the movie itself says, she is grace, she is forgiveness, she is beauty and kindness. And the father is the kind of more human, pragmatic approaches that you have to have. And trying to strike a balance between the two when they're tugging at you is a, is a difficult thing. But that's part of what religious faith is because you can't fully live your life in the way that you know jesus christ would ask you to because we unfortunately are not built for that anymore and uh this movie has a similar a similar bent to it and um so yeah i don't know i feel like malik has always people people get confused by him sometimes i think and i would love someone to tell me if they agree or disagree with this because he has such a focus on nature, but he is definitely a God is in nature kind of guy and not in like a, sure. oh, and I'm out in the forest. I just fear so spiritual. Yay. But like literally like this is God's creation and everything good and evil in it is a like expression of his will. So, see, I, I would almost vehemently disagree with the people who say that this is Malik's most quote Christian movie in part because what I find when I said in my introduction that I it threw me for a loop what i meant was that this movie seems to me almost his least orthodox film in many ways like his trilogy of contemporary films or quadrilogy if you want to loop in the tree of life michael <laughs> um seemed to me like the fullest expression of uh orthodox christianity in a contemporary setting in those films there is like uh an active denial of like the pleasures of like our material world and an embrace of something that is like elsewhere and eternal. Whereas in this movie, we have the exact opposite of that. We have a, a character or at least the movie asks us as viewers to take stock in this particular moment and not worry what comes afterwards. That to me is what is most striking about this movie. Um, I'm not sure if we, want to get into this now but uh in traditional like christian martyr narratives um there is like a a tendency to draw parallels between like the death of christ and the death of the particular martyr and in doing so there is a kind of message to the reader or the viewer whatever it may be that you know what happens in this life is really not all that meaningful in comparison to eternity. And so if you have to die for your faith, it's really not a big deal. But this movie, I think, in many ways challenges that orthodox reading, uh, particularly through that final middle march quote at the end of the movie, where it tells you, like, without any ambiguity, that Francis' sacrifice uh, is meaningful from within the world and that yeah. you don't have to view it from like this eternal uh heavenly perspective right um, I, so I, to me it's like his so, in many ways like challenging to like traditional christian belief to to that point mm. and then i'll i'll, I'll throw it to you bill because i heard you trying to jump in yeah uh-huh. i think that one of the things that's the most powerful about this movie is that it's not a person who's attempting to gain you know the rewards of heaven which again and you know sure. i don't want to uh slander 
a lot of people, <laughs> but I, I'm huh? about to. There is a, there are parts of Christianity that are basically like nothing on earth matters. It's it's like the apocalyptic Christians sure. and evangelicals and stuff who are like nothing on earth matters. I'm just getting that sweet sweet reward where I'll sit with Jesus and all of my other holy friends, and you all will burn in hellfire. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that this movie is like no, the value of what he did isn't anything to do with getting to heaven. It's that. It, like that little ripple might echo and make the world a better place for all of the other children of God left behind. Uh, Bill Graham, what were you going to say? I was going to ask whether you think so. Franz is maybe or maybe not posed as someone that is deeply religious, right? So his, his, um, protestation of what is happening here seems more based on not religion but just simply his gut feeling and how he feels about how his life and what he should be supporting and you know this film goes to great pains to basically showcase that like this could not be further from berlin you know if if it was in another country, right? Like this is a very secluded, very picturesque uh, mountain area that basically utilizes everything that they create on this this hillside and regenerates, and then you know maybe sells to each or barters to each other uh, within the village. But mostly, it is a very insular kind of secluded life right and it seems to me like it would be hard for people in this village to i guess not be christian is is as gentle of a way that i can put it like it it seems like so much back in in some of these mountain villages Everybody is participating in the religion, no matter how much they really like believe. Does that make sense? I I don't know. <laughs> like I think there's that early scene in the movie where he goes to see the the priest. Like he's the first person he consults in the movie uh, when he realizes what he's about to do. I think it it's to me anyway fairly clear that his Christian faith is motivating his actions. And undeniably, with like the historical figure, uh, he you read in his letters like of his like theological beliefs, and that the entire mm. reason for him doing this is largely due to his uh, disagreement with the Catholic Church about sin, um, because the Church would argue that uh, everything that Catholics do in service of the state is not really their it doesn't go against their account, but against the account of the account of whoever is in power. Um, and France, like knowing, like having read his Bible, knows that that's just like quack theology used to like give an ad hoc justification for collaborating right. it's, uh, with it's the like Nazis. A, it's the whole like render unto Caesar thing where it's like, well, you know, that's, you know, the, that's you got to do it because that's the, the state. And also, you know. Back when the Romans were trying to feed people to lions, it was like, maybe if we just, uh, maybe if we like make people listen to their governments, people won't hate us as much. And it becomes, mm-hmm. 
a very convenient way to hold on to your existential power and lives mm-hmm. um, but, but when all I that's think, happening. I think what I find fascinating, and, and this is not necessarily uh, meant as a, a retort to you, Josh, but what mm-hmm. I find so fascinating then is that as I understand Franz, uh, Franz's um, yeah, excuse me, Franz's uh, disagreement yeah, with the idea that, you know, uh, with the institution of the church and it, you know, not um, and the notion of justice and things like that is that this film so consciously abstracts the nature of, of fascism in a way that some people have even viewed it as as crass like you know for instance when when you consider uh i, I was reading something earlier today uh, uh, in a um uh, about the uh, real friends and and for instance he had like deep knowledge of what uh the deeds of, of nazis like what was happening in other countries what was happening in concentration camps and this film at every moment uh like it makes it uh, it makes uh it doesn't necessarily have blinders but it, it it so clearly wants to almost um wants to reject the possibility of giving us the context of fascism like that that's what i find ultimately so fascinating for instance that like and ultimately maybe that's what makes his martyrdom again so powerful is that he is he's not rebelling against any obvious uh, obvious force like nazism despite the fact that it's you know represented through literal imagery from triumph of the will um like other than that it exists as bill said like so tangentially to the point where i was thinking quite a bit actually of of transit i I know jojo rabbit is is the big uh is the big uh resistance narrative that some people have compared this to but i i find the way that both of these uh, almost represent a, a passive fascism like where it it is at once everywhere but like doesn't exist very consciously and intentionally not as a not as a um sorry not this isn't a criticism of it but but rather um i i just find that choice uh so fascinating but also in a way that i guess uh removes me from you know it's it's religious uh substance in a really interesting way and i say this as as someone who has um sorry i am uh i I am agnostic and and i think that absolutely informs a lot of my views towards malik and this has given me cinematically uh, far and structurally far more than the last few have in part because I'm far more fascinated with its historical lens and the way that it deals with time than the actual uh, like moral clarity of France, if that makes any sense.
I guess I guess that's a no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just no, I, I just I need can you can you boil sure. down everything you just said into a single question? It's <laughs> like it almost like cuz I'm not being flippant. It almost sounds sure. like you're saying that the movie doesn't make the Nazis seem bad enough for his his uh conscientious objection to mean anything. I well I'm not actually leveling it as a as a criticism I, right. I think it does actually mean a lot i i think uh, rather if anything i think it's more powerful because nazism is so nebulous at least for the first hour and a half i, I mean i, well, I think for instance how the violence doesn't come into the film until very late like for it, for a lot of this movie, the the uh, impact or side effects of Nazism seem rather good to the the town of Saint Radigand. Like sure. the mayor is like he's given us our hope back. He's like we were like destitute and broken, and he's gonna cast out the people who've been keeping us down. He's given us our pride back. Like this is great, and you're like not doing you're not like showing proper respect Franz. like what's wrong <laughs> sure. with you like, like he references his father for instance yeah his father who fought in world war one and yes. he's like you know what like what would your father think like come on everyone's fought for the fatherland what are you doing what it, like why is this happening another interesting thing in the movie is that everyone keeps referencing that it was like you used to be a cool dude until you got married to fanny <laughs> and now you're all religious <laughs> and shit <laughs> yeah that was that was weird that's that's a How lot to that put weird? on her. I mean, you, uh, th- that's a lot to well, put I, on her. I think it's the movie like abstracts that character's history so much, but it, it's clearly referencing like the fact that before he married Fanny, he was largely like a heathen who would like get drunk, had a child out of wedlock, mm-hmm. but um, then when he got married, like he you know, follow the straight and narrow path. I think, I don't think that's like laying it all on her. I think it's more just like referencing like a fact of like this character's background, even though the film itself doesn't really give you all that much about him prior to the, when the movie starts. Um, I guess it just sort of assumes that if you read around the movie a bit, you'll have some awareness as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, another another instance of that, I guess, is the the motorcycle in the film. It's uh, it's relevant in part because he he was the first person in the town to have like an automobile or a motorcycle, uh, and mm-hmm. so it was like an object of fascination for the people in the village um, because they live in like almost uh, I don't know like an eighteenth nineteenth century. Uh, haven up in the mountains yeah and and that's kind of what i was talking about and i think that's what michael is kind of touching on and brian here's your question is you know nazism and what it stands for really hasn't touched this village at all but i'm saying it has it's just all been good like it's positive as shit. Like as it would be sure, for sure. a lot of people Which, who are not all the people the Nazis hate. Sure, sure. But I think I think my issue and the reason why I thought maybe religion isn't as much of a part of it is because it just seems like 
this guy is objecting to just the basic fundamental facts, right? That Germany is expanding, is invading France, is invading all of these other foreign countries. And he's like, why the hell are we doing this? Well, he like says we, in in his in his like you know one of his many moments where he's like this is why I'm doing this he's like you know sure. we're going we're we're killing people like he they yeah. he saw the propaganda videos of like dead women and children and while everyone else is cheering being like yeah good he is like oh god like this is not fine like this is this isn't even a war of expansion you know to to spread our ideology like this is evil like this is bad like we should mm-hmm. like this cannot go on like. And but I would say that scene is very much an outlier in terms of its specificity. And again, I'm I think this is being interpreted that I think this is a bad thing. That's not the case. <laughs> I'm rather I'm rather saying I think that's what makes this film incredibly interesting from a structural standpoint is that it, it could very explicitly be about nationalism as as it exists in, you know, excuse me as as a malicious influence as seeing you know how it changes the townspeople and you yes you do see the the mayor you know berate people and talk about nationalism but it's still not the imagery that we usually associate with uh uh, nazism and, and fascism and i'm yeah, again, this is not something I think this movie is bad about. I think it's actually what makes it really interesting that it it avoids those trappings. And I think it makes it a very uh, conscious but nonetheless uh, strange choice that Malik it, it like chooses intentional vagueness in, in the case of so much of this. Sure. And, and like, for instance, the townspeople seem to be rejecting this family of Franz and, and Fanny more, more openly just simply because they are not supporting the national kind of through line. Right. Sure. It's It's got nothing to do with like they're not even having a conversation about like what Nazism is or what this war is about or any of that shit. They're just like you're not going to war. You suck, right? You, don't, just you like, don't have solidarity with the village, therefore you're yeah. against us. Like it's, I, I think it's, it's, I think it's, it's very wild fast that there's almost there's almost no conversation uh, about Hitler. You you know, like for instance, when he's talking of to agents of the church, uh, you, you know, he like they are naturally very wary of what they say you know worried that he's a, a spy or something and trying to uh, mm-hmm. yeah I, I i guess and i think it's ultimately i i can't help but maybe this is a a bad in bad faith but i can't help but uh keep thinking about the fact that the that this used to be called a radigan like i i recognize it in life is a great title but just how much it continually goes back to the village and specifically a village that makes their money working the land and how that relates to the notion of like a nationalism. I think that it's, it's, it's fascinating that the, until the very end, I don't think that 
Malik's like easy, like, uh, I don't think that Malik's stance is as confident as a lot of people do when they talk about this film. I, I felt this actually reading your piece, Brian, like the extent to which you talked about, uh, Malik's confidence in Franz being a, a good person is, I think something Malik fundamentally feels, but also I, I'm not sure that I feel the film has that same confidence in his own, uh, in his own actions. Or, or I think it's, well, I think at he least is more ambiguous. At, I think he's expected. at some level like concerned that he's not doing the right thing. Sure. Oh, which, absolutely. Which would definitely, you know, it follows through then that the movie would like show off that lack of true certainty. So, I, I'm, well, I, I'm I'm curious, you guys, because uh, I almost have like the exact opposite viewpoint on this. Where where do you feel in the film that lack of certainty? Uh, yeah like towards his his beliefs and his convictions like at what point do you feel that because i i almost get the sense that the movie never questions that that his sacrifice is without meaning like in a movie like silence you feel you feel that at every juncture right yes rodriguez is constantly questioning himself but in hidden life there are absolutely no moments where the character calls into question the like veracity of his actions. Right. So I, I'm just curious where, where you see that doubt creeping in. I, I recognize that my, my, my view blurs a little bit here because I think that the last 15 minutes uh, absolutely supports the notion from both the formal choices um, that that it fully believes in his convictions. But I think that earlier in the film that um, it, it, yes, it's true that friends like never has, you know, he's not ever having a, a crisis of confidence. It, it's an immovable ideology that he is feeling um, and an immovable faith, I guess, to, you know, uh, make it specifically religious. But I, I do think that, I, I like the way that Malik seems to nonetheless continually question him. His, his answer doesn't change, but I do think that uh, I, in the choice to constantly go back to the village, in the way that the conversations are constantly structured as one-sided, for instance, you know, I, I already spoke about how, for instance, when when people ask friends for uh, you know, why is he doing this? And I, and like, it is left. Malik leaves it as like, uh, I mean, maybe inscrutable is the wrong word because that doesn't communicate uh, Franz's own confidence in his belief. But I think that. Well, uh, he's, he's omitted all the reasons for him sure. acting the way that he does, right? So those those questioning scenes, like, serve to uh, ask us, like, or evoke the question in us why he's doing what he's doing, right? We want to yeah. know, like, what, what his motivations are, because the 
the film never really gives them to you, which is no. the most like important fact about the movie to me anyway. Uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> um, but I think those questioning scenes aren't really there to ask you whether or not his actions are meaningful. They're more for you to like engage with his person and try to figure out like what it is that's making this guy act the way that he is. Right. Um, that's the distinction I would draw there. I don't know if you agree. I draw that distinction as, as well, but I also think that it goes further because, um, it's, it's stripping away all of the usual martyr narrative reasons for a person doing this and really driving home just how pointless this could be for him to do this. Um, I mean, uh, Matthias Schoenarts shows up and is like, you know, do you think like that the generals are worried about you? Like, do you think that the high command even knows who you are? Like we don't let stories like yours get out. You know, you're not a, you're not a figure. You're not, you're not anything. You're not even a thorn in the side of like a corporal. No one knows about this. Like this is right. But all, all of those questions are put in the mouths of Nazis, right? So yeah. there, there is like a, as a viewer, we're, we're, we don't really take those questions, I guess, all that, like, we don't believe like the motivation behind those questions, right? Like right, the, he's, the, he's the, the, I think it, it, for them, it might be like, maybe like, <laughs> like, sure, this guy isn't famous, but like, they still don't want anyone doing this. Like, it's not it's not good in general. Like if people do this, so like if he goes back and is like, I changed my mind, that's a propaganda win, even though it's not going to be a propaganda win for him. If he, if he doesn't do that, but it's, it's, it, yeah, sorry. I'm, I keep going here. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, no, no. It, it's interesting to me that, uh, so all the people who ask these questions to me, like remind me so much of like the figure of Satan throughout the Bible, like the way he shows up in the garden and questions Eve about like what in fact she knows, like, did God really say that you Mm. can't eat of the tree? And all of the figures that are questioning France throughout that movie have like a, like a satanic something about them. Uh, It's uh, I can't pick out like specific lines of dialogue, but that's, an impression that it left on me, particularly like when France is in the prison courtyard uh, and he's like being asked by like one particular dude about why he's doing what he's doing. Um, sure. Yeah. When he says like, you know, um, like you, what there's one of the people is like, you know, you still fill sandbags. You're still polishing boots. Like, yeah. That's kind of helping still, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Good old but, Matthias Schoenarts. Yeah. <laughs> Polishing and, boots. Yep. And then, um, and then, um, Bruno Ganz is in here. And I think that this is like the most important conversation that he has in terms of like clarifying the concepts in this movie is just that he says like, you know, but what, like, do you think Hitler's wicked? And it would be so easy for the movie for Franz to go like, Yeah. But yeah clearly and he instead says i can't know that like i i could be wrong i have a voice in my soul that says that this is bad and maybe like someone who's a good person does enough bad things that at some point they can't turn back and they're stuck and maybe there's a, still- a man may do wrong and he can't get out of it yes and like that's an inc- that's that's the type of thing that we 
presently, and I don't want this to become a giant thing about the 2020 election or the state of American politics, but like, okay. um, or like world <laughs> politics, really, given like, sure. you know, the United Kingdom and all their nonsense that they're doing. Um, but like, we don't feel that anymore. We, I've had people say like, well, if you eat at Chick-fil-A, you deserve to be murdered. Like, you know, you're you're the wickedest, most evil human being who's ever lived. Uh, you make Hitler look like a Tamagotchi, and uh, you should be put to death. It and and it's 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 interesting in this movie, where you literally have a man about to be like murdered by the state machinery of the Nazi Party, and they're like, "Well, sure. like, you know, this is about to happen to you, and you clearly don't want to fight for us. So, like, do you think Hitler's evil?" And he's like, "No, like that's not. I'm not doing it because I have any." certainty about anything i just know that it is wrong to be doing this and i will not judge certain people for doing certain things but this i can't do it i simply cannot be a part of this and you know it's it's a great scene when he leaves and then bruto gans is standing there and then he sits down in the chair that franz had just been in and you can almost see on his face like i i am a very important nazi and like you know what what can i say to this this farmer like, I have no actual power in the face of all this. And were I sitting where he was, would I have even the power that he just had? And it's uh, it's crazy. It's 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 moments like that. And that just like really drive home a lot of what I love about this movie. It is not strident. It is not judgmental. No. It is it is a pure reflection of what I believe, like the platonic ideal of like Christian or at least Catholic faith should be. It's 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 really quite remarkable in that way. I think it's, I think it's fascinating that I. Oh, this is gonna sound bad. Great. Um, that I didn't interpret the people who do question him as uh, malevolent forces. If anything, I thought when they asked him, it was in a in a thoughtful. Way. Obviously, they are they are not not Nazis. I'm not saying that, but I do think nonetheless, it's, um, it's interesting that you saw those as, uh, you know, personifications of, of Satan in that way. Josh. I, I, I don't know if I would go so, so far as that, but I think I, I apologize particular... if I mischaracterized your words. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> Cause I wasn't totally clear. I, I, I agree that those figures throughout the film, and are asking questions like almost out of good faith right like they just want to know why this guy is behaving so strangely to them right but it's just more the specific phrasing of those questions that reminded me of like the tactics that you see of satan um they yeah does that does that make sense like there are echoes but they are not necessarily like the personification of satan um throughout the movie well, yeah, because Satan in 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 the Bible primarily is not like a, a like a real bad dude. Like he's never coming up and being like, you know, what you should do is like murder everyone and well, like bathe in their that, blood. Yeah. You know, he's like, what you should do is you should jump off this mountain and have your dad catch you and float sure. you to safety. You know, what you should do is you should turn these rocks to bread. Like what you should do is satisfy your own ego and show off how important you are. Like that's, uh, are you speaking specifically when they're in the desert? Yes. Yeah. Right. Cause what? And again, what? who's in the desert in this movie? Jesus. What are we talking Sorry. about? Jesus, uh, in, the Jesus in the desert. That's the next Malik movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's going to hire Ewan McGregor, I guess. <laughs> I, I just, um, I, I really am now questioning uh, whether my lack of faith has informed my viewing of this film. Well, you're sympathizing with the way. Nazis, so clearly. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> They're not uh, all bad. They're not all bad. Good people on both sides. Yeah, he's, this he's isn't got Joe good questions. <laughs> he's, he's got he's got good questions. Oh damn it! No, I, I think I think one one thing that's interesting about this film is to think from the perspective of of the villagers and to realize like what it means to be on the wrong side of history. And, you know, to throw stones at their kids and, like, yell at them. And yet, like, all they really seem to be or all all Fanny really is guilty of is going about her business still. Like, she's still participating in this little secluded society. She's still, like putting in work like if anything she's maybe working harder than anybody else around her simply because nobody else wants to give her any help and so i find it fascinating just from their perspective because they are so insular and they are so secluded that again it kind of goes back to what i was mentioning earlier where it's like they just see it as nationalism and as like, you know, I, I I wonder. I really wish I knew how much this village was touched by World War One, and how you know were they devastated? And I, I mean, speaking broadly, I know Europe was just you know decimated full on from World War One, especially like the male population and stuff of that nature. Um, but I'm curious how much world war one touched this village specifically and what their feeling of like nationalism is even included um is it reflecting like hey we had this giant war you know what two decades ago and now we're gonna do it again and you know you need to support us so I don't know. I, I I find that interesting thinking from their perspective of the villagers, like how much blame do they have for like even supporting the Nazi cause? Like how much do well, they know? Yeah, that's I mean, and that's kind of what I'm that's kind of what I keep saying. Like whenever we talk sure. about like the lack of imagery of concentration camps or like speaking outwardly about the evils of the Nazi party and what they were doing, like, yeah, the, the thing about this movie that makes it in my reckoning so powerful is how much sense it makes to be a part of the Nazi power to these people. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, like you were saying, not even know and not even know, right. You know, and whether they are blinded to it because they are remote in the mountains or they just do not give a damn because you know, bad shit happens. Um, and personal sense as well, as he sees how how his wife and children are affected by, him being gone as well. Yeah. Like people are throwing rocks at her kids. You know, no one's helping her in the fields. It's, um, it's, it's heartbreaking for these people because to the rest of the village, like this is a good and fine thing. And why are you standing up for like people in other countries rather than defending your own country? Like, why are you, 
siding with the classes that we all hate when we are suffering here and finally some good stuff is happening to us. Mm. And, um, you know, his answer to that is because we're all humans and because I am a man with a soul and I cannot, you know, as a person who's accepted a certain, you know, religious faith and, and let it, you know, help guide the morality that I now have decided to live by. I can't, I can't do it. It's just not, it's not a possibility for me. And, um, I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if his, so, so this is based on a real life character and uh, Josh, I know you were kind of mentioning, you know, pulling in some, some extracurricular stuff and mentioning that like, you know, it, it is based on a real life character. And I'm, I'm very curious if like his whole background of, settling down with fanny and like turning this leaf over in his life and not being this wild rambunctious guy anymore i wonder if that gave him any more uh sense of like righteous responsibility to stand up to this like he had turned a a leaf in his own life and now he's seeing this situation and he's like no i'm not gonna allow me or uh, allow myself to just get bowled over here I'm going to stand up because I've made this own kind of transformation in my life. So I would say I'm that curious just, just yeah, from my personal like life, you know, converts are usually a lot more fervent than people born mm-hmm. in faith. Sure. Yeah. I don't know if you agree, Josh. Um, well, I think it largely has to do with like the theological beliefs he formed in that time uh, where he got married and, like more devoted uh he was reading his bible more developing his faith and i think his stance was a natural outcome from that development um it's uh yeah it's really interesting to me that malik has basically extracted all of the theological content from the the letters that this movie is actually based on um mm. in 2008 i believe the uh the letters that franz and fanny exchanged while he was in jail were published and translated and i i assume that at which point malik read it um but despite being based on those letters like it, very few of the like didactic lines in those letters have actually made their way into into the movie malik mm-hmm. has like deliberately snipped around them so that france's motivations are always obscured mm. yeah, yeah I think it, it's, it, it's, it becomes more it, just like because he is a man of faith rather than like this particular line of scripture like i right. you know it's it's interesting that it almost strikes a balance between like you never question that it is because of his faith, but also it doesn't get too deep in the weeds of explaining how or why. I don't. I don't think we see a Bible at all in this entire film. There's a. There's definitely. A, there's definitely a crucifix. There's in crucifixes. Their home. They're. They're in a church. I assume that somewhere sure. in the background there must be a Bible. But yeah, <laughs> you know, he's not. It's not. Um. It's not. God's not dead. Where a kid like battles a philosophy professor by quoting the bible you know because like at at the end of the day like you know it's just a book and if you don't take it into your heart and do the right thing with it it's a pointless 
<laughs> Hardly what, what the paper in, it's printed on. <laughs> one interesting thing, uh, I perused the four-year consideration screenplay that was circulating. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that script was like copyrighted in 2016, I believe. And it's really interesting to see how uh, the film basically completely evolved uh, since that screenplay was copyrighted. Like in that original version, Franz is goes around basically, you know, telling people why he believes what he does. And it does have a far more didactic tone than the eventual movie. But I guess in after shooting and editing the movie, he decided to delete all of those things from the film. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's remarkable how little the like published screenplay actually resembles the finished film, at least in my like cursory yeah, I, um, reading of it. I I got I got a copy of the screenplay, um, as a for your consideration thing, and uh, I was writing an article or an essay or whatever about this, and I was like, oh, there's lines that I need to remember, and I went into the I went into the screenplay looking for them. I was like, right. okay, this is not helpful at all. I did exactly the same thing. Yeah. So I had to wait until I got the DVD and then I watched it 17 times. And um, that's that's so interesting that they would even publish that as the four year consideration. And like it out. Yeah. Yeah. There's because, like, you I can mean, that's see the, the structure. That, but like a uh-huh. lot of my favorite lines are not in there at all. Like the. Well, that's a that's a fascinating kind of snapshot of of this film's production but any film's production is getting like an early draft or something like that something that basically isn't the actual shooting script because then you get to see some lines of dialogue or some snips that were made or you know scenes and all this stuff but for it to like it to have the bones, but not necessarily the substance of what the film actually ultimately ends up being is, is wild. That's what, that's wild stuff that you would send that out and be like, isn't this great? And you look at it and you look like, I can imagine like the, the people in the Oscars, like doing like the, the, the screenplay and then like showing like the actual scene and being like, wait, where's, Where's this scene? What what's going on here? Like, <laughs> I can't find it. <laughs> I read so. the I read the the script. Um, I was really bored at work once when this movie came out for The Wolf of Wall Street, uh-huh. and it was the four year consideration script. And you could it, you could see where things were excised, like mm-hmm. scene numbers would jump <laughs> because oh, wow. you, you know they had a script and it's still a three hour long movie, but they were like, well. You know, if we got this for your consideration screenplay, we shouldn't put in the 20 pages of stuff that we maybe shot but didn't actually put in the movie. Yeah. Um, Hidden Life, not so much. Um, I, Because one of the things that I really wanted to... I wanted to find the thing that Fanny said about you can't change the world, it's too big. Yeah. And uh, that was... I don't think that was in there. And then the other thing, the <laughs> moment that this movie punched me in the face and like became possibly my favorite malik movie if only because it is again one that just speaks so clear-eyed towards my own catholic faith is when he's talking to the painter in the chapel about admirers and believers yeah it's he and he's talking about like you know i paint their comfortable christ Mm -hmm. you know one day i'll write like i'll I'll paint the true christ you know I'll, i'll do all this stuff you know we we make admirers not followers 
And I'm just like, oh my God, that is such a line. Like that is, <laughs> that is a devastating, as a person who's grown up, you know, and has spoken to people and like when, when, uh, I am, I am a conservative man, I guess. And when people were like, so are you going to vote for Donald Trump? I was like, I fucking can't. Like, it's just, you know, you always got to make some adjustments to whomever you're going to vote for. But I just 100% can't. I cannot put a man of such low character in power. And and these are people that, like, I usually agree with on everything. And they were like, oh, really? Because I'm going to. And I'm like, but fucking why? <laughs> like, <laughs> how does your soul let you do that terrible thing? And I was just like, I don't like, how can you, how can you sit in church and then go and vote for that man? And, um, you know, when I heard that line of we create admirers, not followers, it's like, yeah, exactly. You know, the church it, in the way that it talks about it and in the way that it shows the images of the, the saints and the apostles and everyone, you look up and you go, God, that sure was a fella. All right. I'm going to go not help the poor some more. It's also sure. important that he puts that in the mouth of a painter, yeah. an artist, and sure. to me is uh, an obvious example of Malik speaking to his own body of work and feeling like a level of culpability. Um, you, I think the biggest change to the way this movie operates on the viewer is uh, indicated in this scene, which is that in the other movies like tree of life uh, and especially the the last three movies he made there's the the effect of them is basically what the the painter says which is to look up and dream right sure and i assume um malik feels that due to whatever is going on in the world at the moment or perhaps you don't even have to put it as strongly as that that a new kind of form is required and that we can't just create works of art that are making people passive and not engaging with the world around them because it's precisely that mentality that allows for people to seize control and for fascism to take root. And so this movie I think is always working against like the archival footage in the film. Like you, that early moment in the movie where France is at a screening of, uh, the Nazi propaganda film, we see people like leaping to their feet, right? Mm -hmm. um, also, the movie opens with footage from Triumph of the Will. And mm -hmm. in those moments, it's it's strange that there's like almost no on those images. Like now, whenever we see uh, like images from this era, there's always like an attempt to create like a moral distance from them. Mm -hmm. But it's there in this film it's totally different like i think there's almost an attempt to replicate the effect that these images might have had within their original context and then to create like an oppositional force against them if that makes sense like the moment that <laughs> i i don't know how to put this other than subjectively which is that this is a movie that makes me want to do good in the world yeah. and i think it's that's exactly the effect that malik wants to have and that uh, is the the rectifying that he's doing uh, is indicated in that scene with the painter, right? Yeah, and, it, um, and I think part of it is that it's it's it is difficult to be. I mean, you can't you you can and you should admire Franz Jagerstadter, but it's difficult to be an admirer of his because like he doesn't do anything cool. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> you know, 
he doesn't he doesn't give an impassioned speech like he doesn't he doesn't win uh you know spoiler alert he dies he he is he is killed um people didn't even know about him on like a wide scale until the 60s so it's difficult because you know you look at jesus and jesus is like causing a social revolution that makes the romans murder him you know, because he's got too many followers and he's too popular and well-loved. And Franz is like, well, my wife still loves me. And that is about it. So it's hard to be an admirer of his in the in the traditional sense of the word. But, like, you definitely want to be a person who follows in his footsteps. Like, you see what he does. And you you honestly think to yourself, like, I want to have the power that that man has. I want to be able to look at myself at the end of my life and go, I was able to exercise that kind of will for good. I think what's then again, so fascinating about what you're speaking to Josh, that like the, the present, that feeling of, uh, of present tense, but also, you know, recognizing, uh, how that was viewed in the time is, is then again what we're already speaking about is just that it 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 is completely snipped not only of context or moral distance but a a um I don't know but in a way isn't it almost a, a moral distance like I, I I guess this is my one thing this is the one thing I feel strange about in snipping so much of this context and that is that some of the some of the the coding almost becomes confusing to me like when you consider for instance that the bad and, and i say bad quote with quotation marks the bad nazis are the ones who speak full german while the you know while other conversations while other questions that he's asked are expressed in english people in the village uh speak in english for the most part until they speak in german when they're um you know uh influenced by the nationalism of the country like there is there is something there is something a little bit a little bit strange to me about uh, wanting to almost have that have that both ways like I, I there's something that just feels a little bit weird to me in, in a way that the other like didactic aspects don't bother me but something about the fact that there is kind of a a moral distance from like any specificity of what it was like being in Rodigan during World War II. Like, you think that there's I, I no know. specificity about what it was like being in Rodigan during World War II? No, I think that there's no specific. There's no specificity about what it represents, other than a nationalism. I don't. What do you mean? I don't know. I, I try, just trying to think of the best way to ask that question. I'm not sure what sure. you. I'm not sure what you mean. It, it, it only what like. Tr- I. 
Um, what, what do I mean? Like, I get a very clear <laughs> well, well, picture Michael, of life in that sure. town where the mayor and everyone else is amped about Hitler and they're on board with the war and they're giving money to the effort and they're just like thrilled about it because their lives are changing for the better. And that. But we're not actually seeing their lives change for the better. I don't like, think that their lives are changing for the better. I think they perceive that their lives are changing for the better because they see Germany rise, or they, or well, they see the possibility that Austria, with Germany's rise, could also be yes, see the change. But like, I, I guess that what's here, here's what I guess what I'm trying to communicate. We've talked so much about how in making this film so powerful by not giving any easy moral markers. I I think that that works almost entirely in the film's favor, but it's still, I I don't know. It's not like I want some easy scene in the village where we're seeing some, effect of nazism but there's still something what do you think nazism did no but um, i don't like i i really like you keep saying it's nothing but the effect of nationalism but like that was it to a lot of people like yeah but we're not actually seeing i mean i guess you could just i guess you can just um define uh fascism as in, in the uh fascism is super easy and doesn't change your life much if you embrace it wholeheartedly sure but it's like, also the silencing of ideals it's the right. and the the church is saying that like they they can't speak out against it their bells are about to be melted for bullets the men in the yes. village are being brought to war and if you in the silence of ideals i mean his family's being ostracized people are throwing rocks at his children and they're not allowed to take part in religious ceremonies with the rest of the town the reason that you don't see a lot of the impact of that is because the rest of the town is wholeheartedly embraced this and is totally fine with it well i don't know if they're totally fine with it as we see from the people of the church it's not like they're <laughs> yes but they're certainly not standing it. up to it like they're they're no they're good because they recognize the threat yeah I mean, I think that comes the closest to what I want uh, more of, but also the idea of another scene that would more uh, telegraph that idea also sounds terrible. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that this film is otherwise so complicated and thoughtful about that notion that I think that some of the... And something about the the village reads as simplistic to me in a way that I'm obviously articulating in a poor way. <laughs> well, Michael, uh, you did bring up the the like strange use of languages in the movie, yeah. how it seems to almost at random, sometimes clearly calculated switch between English and German. And yeah. to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what to do with that like the the most literal reading of it i suppose is that there are production constraints and to have this movie entirely in german was 
um, clearly not okay for the financial backers. But then there's also certain cases in the movie where uh, the German is almost used as like an othering effect. Sure. Right. Unsubtitled. Yeah. Like, yeah. But then there are also cases where the German is used almost to like protect a private moment between Franz and Fanny. Like at the end of the film, the the Lord's prayer is uttered in German and not in English. And it you really only recognize it because of like the very clear cadence and rhythm of the Lord's mm-hmm. prayer. So even though you don't sure. know the words, like you recognize what is being said. So yeah, I, I guess this is all to say that I'm totally bewildered by it and I don't know what to do. And I can see that in certain <laughs> cases it's being used to other the Germans and create mm-hmm. clear moral signposts which is what you were saying and in, but yeah. in other cases it seems to be doing something else and well, so I, I don't think, think i don't think the best way to approach it is to necessarily create like a grand unified theory about sure. what the languages are doing in the movie it's probably best just to take it on an individual mo- like take each moment as its own and attempt to interpret it that way and so your like objection about uh it clearly marking the Nazis as other, I think is totally valid and something that is worth discussing. I, um, I find that interesting because I don't know, like maybe this is just me. A Nazi is a Nazi. So a lot of Nazis in this movie speak in English. Um, I understand that there are moments where people are screaming at him in German and you can't tell what they're saying. I, 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 I think constantly when people talk about that, about, um, the new world, <laughs> where uh, oh, yeah. John That's Smith right. comes back to the the fort uh, to James Jamestown mm-hmm. and um oh who's that British character actor who's in that movie Eddie Marson Eddie yeah. Marson is screaming in full-throated English and you can't tell what he's saying because Malik loves to do this thing where he just basically drops the volume on a on a speaker yeah and lets their face do the work and their body language and usually he's overlaying it with like a whispery voiceover or some moving piece of orchestral score. And so to me, it was like there, there seemed to me in Malik films to be moments where he's like, I want people to know that he's saying words, but the words are so unimportant. Sure. And so a lot of times I saw the German in this and I was like, Oh right. He just found a way to in the movie, get around having to actually like cut and edit dialogue. Like this guy could be saying complete and utter nonsense because it's been cut up so much, but now Malik doesn't have to worry about that. I mean, I think there's something to be said that like the cadence of it, like I, 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 the, the best wording I've heard for it is precognitive. Like Mm -hmm. there's some like precognitive, you know, it's, it's not only the narration, but as you're saying, Brian, it's as much the volume, it's as much the ways that it's, it's drowned out in a way that you fully get the, uh, the effect of, of what the character's trying to communicate or what the, uh, you know, person's trying to communicate. But um, I, I don't know though. I think that, I think that it does feel a little more awkward here. I, I think you are probably right practically about cutting around him. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is something that makes sense. I, I guess I, I I partly push back on like 
I, I guess it's probably true that backers would want this to be in English, but I, I somehow feel like Malik has enough clout that if he really wanted to. You think Malik he, has clout? <laughs> Did you see the release this movie got? Yeah, no, I was about to say, we talked about that at the very beginning. <laughs> like, this movie was basically silenced. Yeah, but the extent to which who are the Nazis at at Fox Searchlight? Who are the Nazis? <laughs> oh, we must Taika Waititi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the extent to which his films gestate. I guess uh, gives me the the impression that he has more power than he might have in Hollywood. <laughs> no, I think that's a, a valid point. I I just said that in part because I'm wholly speculating here oh, i really sure. i really possible. don't know it's what to make of this the, the the bg artists in this movie that he got like only spoke german i don't know like that's it's you well, know, he, it's, another thing is that he i know in fact he does speak german uh because so he might like, just not have even noticed <laughs> he did a well, translation yeah, of, I, I had assumed that this movie it was only until i actually saw it that i I found out that it wouldn't be entirely in German. I just assumed that <laughs> yeah, because so he I. speaks German <laughs> and because the movie is set in Austria, that, that everyone would speak German. But yeah. Did he mention in your piece that he actually did a translation of uh, it's, it's not Heidegger, but it uh, is Heidegger. Oh, it is Heidegger. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, Brian, I, I'm curious. I did that. So again, you just kind of viewed it in in the same sense as you view that New World example, or um, yeah, that New World example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, look, it's it's a it's a Terrence Malick movie. Anytime a character actually holds a conversation that happens in a linear fashion where you can track what they're saying, <laughs> sure. you're doing great. Like the man, <laughs> the man doesn't do that a lot, you know. Like think about Knight of Cups. Sure. Like think about the party scene where the the only thing the only scrap of dialogue aside from uh Antonio Banderas saying his like you know women are different flavors type of thing which is again is is partially in voiceover the only diegetic dialogue that you really get is Tom Lennon saying it's cold and it's full of sharks that's why I don't like the ocean <laughs> Doesn't uh, Nick Offerman say something about Call of Duty? Yeah, he says he <laughs> Nick Offerman is in it, but that's not at that party. That's like when they're on some stairs somewhere, and he says like I play my life is like Call of Duty on easy mode, like I'm just wasting motherfuckers or something like that. <laughs> Definitely Malik's funniest movie, I will say. Fucking Knight of Cups rules so hard <laughs> because it's only like the fifth time you watch it when you're like if. If all these people are playing themselves, then that means that Christian Bale's character is a comedy writer. <laughs> like Dan Harmon is in that movie. Oh, boy. I love yeah. that. Uh, just just because I so rarely get a chance to talk about Night of Cups. My favorite part of that movie is when he walks to the apartment and two guys have broken in and they're confounded that he doesn't have more to steal. <laughs> That's such a good moment. <laughs> oh my god! Let's say this movie is also beautiful. <laughs> We've talked very little about the form of this movie, and I think that yeah. you know, talking about almost like the dialogue editing gives a chance here to. This is a this is a great 
you know, short lens, wide angle compositions, sans the uh, the kind of distortion on the edges that you get in some of Emmanuel Lubezki's work in the more modern films. Um, it's very sharp frames from edge to edge. The editing is is like, you know, nice and lyrical and leisurely. The fucking score, you know, I listen to it work sometimes just because I need to like feel some greater power in my life when I'm hammering it away at a document. <laughs> and the, the acting is this so is... good. Like August Deal and Valerie Pachner are just like, uh, just like there's such a, I, I don't even want to call it chemistry. It's like there's such a, a rhythm between them. This feels like uh, I'd say this feels like more of an actor's movie than the last few, and in, in a way I didn't expect. Like, like you know, you always get the 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 very vibrant body language, you know, in his in his recent films, but just the extent to how much this uh, focuses on faces and reactions, and you know, like just that unseen interiority, like. And and you know I, I would say Brasonium, but that almost seems too, <laughs> that seems too distant. Like this is there is a donkey know, in this movie. It, it's an oddly warm film for one that refuses to really let you in, <laughs> and mm. let you into the character's mind. <laughs> so, I, I yeah I I, I think to before I forget I, Josh and uh, Brian maybe you can correct me but. D- I don't feel like Malik uses fade to black quite as often in in other recent films. Like th- this has a uh, really episodic huh. sense, like episodic never, chapter sense to me. I haven't thought of that. And just thinking off the top of my head, the only time I distinctly remember a few fades to black is back in Days of Heaven. Um, where where are they in Hidden Life? There's, there's there's moments where it it, yeah. it fades to black and like a bell tolls, right? And yeah, it, it's 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 weird. You almost expect like a, a um a title card to come up to like tell you you've entered a new yes. chapter. Yeah, no, it it felt <clears throat> very very literary to me, and I I felt too that I didn't. But I think what is literary, but also not in the sense that it would. I, it it didn't feel clearly delineated like this is the end of a moment. This is the, you know, the start of a new arc or anything like that. But yeah, after, especially rewatching it last night, I there's there's like a, a dozen fade to blacks that I, I think I, at least to me felt uh, very different. I, I mean, besides the general expression of time in this, mm. which which already feels uh uh, much calmer <laughs> than his recent films. Um, yeah, the fade of black is what really stuck with me. Even though I, I'm not sure I have any larger thing to say about it, but I was just kind of curious. Yeah, no, I, I felt it. that too, and it almost helps. Like a lot of sometimes you're watching a Terrence Malick film, especially his more recent ones, and you're just like, "This is just going, isn't it?" Like it's just <laughs> there's no scenes. There's there's not a lot going on. I mean, Knight of Cups has the uh, the very helpful uh, interstitial titles. Yes. telling you which card you're on something like song to song or to the wonder you know you're more like this is just happening and it's all just going forward and now we're doing a new thing and this one definitely feels as though he had more of a narrative flow in mind sure 
but it's still guess, not an obvious it also, flow. It, it felt weird for me that um, Franz uh, Rogowski came back. Um, he's really good in this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, speaking of transit, he's great in transit. Yeah. He's great in this. But it's just funny because, like, I saw him in that first part when they're at, you know, basic training. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, it's him. That's cool. And then he's gone. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're never going to see him again. And then he comes back when they're in prison. And for some reason, I was just like, wow, Malik brought a character back? Like, he... <laughs> Like it's it was weird to feel that kind of flow of narrative because again it's just like a lot of times his his stuff feels very just a flood of images and, and people right and almost true to life in the way that like well I met that guy and I'll never meet him again like in a movie that might happen and it's like oh that's like a movie moment but it works so well because you need him to have some kind of connection in that prison and uh, Franz talking about. What happens when you die? Oh yeah. my god, I love that scene. Yeah, you reach up and and you grab your head and you put it back on and the chains are gone. Yeah, just like oh my god. <laughs> Can I speak to the the form really quickly? Yes, you may. Oh, yeah, please. Um, Sorry, Josh. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, to me, I guess the biggest difference between this and the recent cycle of movies is that in the other movies there is like. A metaphysical distance that's created like between us and the images we're seeing i guess the the best examples i can point to are probably in night of cups so in that film like there's a scene in an art gallery with an exhibit of like a like a little race cars going around a highway track and uh the characters wandering throughout an art gallery and to me in that scene there is almost like the sense that we are no longer looking at like people in a physical space, there is almost an attempt on the movie's part to like evoke this other realm. Um, and throughout those movies, like the, the physical aspects of the images themselves are almost secondary to like the symbolic import of them. So to that, that might sound vague, but I'll, I'll use like one illustration to clearly, uh, uh, to make, this clear so at the end of song to song there is uh ryan gosling rooney mara and this little white blonde baby running in like a a deserted field mm-hmm. and like all very hetero um and there's almost the sense that this place doesn't actually exist like it's a it's a symbol an icon but it's not we're not really looking at an image of an actual place if you understand what I mean, whereas in this movie, all of the images of the farm, the agrarian life are completely different from that symbolic one that we get at the end of song to song. Like when Fanny is like digging in the ground, you really get the sense that she's actually digging and that this work is actually very difficult. Whereas in the previous Malik movies, at least in this recent cycle, whenever we get like images of going back to the land or, or, or um, have like that like physical literalness that is evident throughout this movie. Do you, do you follow what I mean? Yes. This the, yeah. there's there's so many points in this movie where I was like, so he just really made them side that field, didn't he? Like he <laughs> they're there and it's just like he. But walks you never see that in any of the other like recent Malik movies, no. right? Like they they almost speak like an entirely symbolic language, whereas this one has almost like a, a documentary 
quality to the images. Like a lot of well, some yeah, people have been complaining that like they feel the cinematography is almost amateurish because the the camera like bumps into things and like wobbles in places that you might not think it should. But I, to me, that attests to like the the present tenseness and like the the, the terrestrial re- quality. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. I one hundred percent agree. Yeah. Also, I think, like, as a as a person who um, recently started shooting with a with a fourteen millimeter lens, <clears throat> I uh, I appreciate the fact that this movie doesn't just use a wide angle as an excuse to be able to like just be on someone. That like there are compositions in this movie that actually like have them foregrounded, but still make use of the wide angle to take in the rest of the world around them. And it's oh man, like you know Austria, beautiful country. I'm sure no one's ever said that before. <laughs> it's I, just, I think it's so good. I am um, on a on another note. I don't know what the hell happened to me, but every time I open a, a YouTube video recently, I get a a commercial for Viking cruise lines, like the river tours through like the Rhine and Austria and Germany. <laughs> and I don't know, like if I've just been looking at more expensive stuff online that you know YouTube's algorithm thinks that I could afford a European vacation. <laughs> I cannot, even though a hidden life really makes me wish that I could. <laughs> what I was going to say in relation to your point, Josh, is I, I think that uh, the scene where um, he's reading aloud uh, the letter from Fanny is really, uh, it, and I suppose you could say earlier, it's fascinating. Every time where he seems to imagine Fanny, it's it's not like he's going into a, a dream world. There's no sense of... Uh, surrealism it, it's it's as you're saying just a, an object existing as itself and representing mm-hmm. itself and and i think that's i, th- I think that's uh to, to put a kind of final a pin on that too i think it's really fascinating how we have almost uh you know the two forms of freedom in the sense of yeah you know fanny is living this uh you know, idyllic, but obviously very difficult life, but still, you know, one that's respected or, or not respected, but uh, idealized where, you know, Franz is constantly thinking about that world and everything. And, you know, his own freedom is a, a freedom from a sense of, um, uh, you know, from from feeling like he's being forced to do the wrong thing. So I, I just find it again, really fascinating that it uh, compares those, those two images and um, places them side by side over and over again. Also, um, Brian, earlier you spoke about the, the James Newton Howard score mm-hmm. and I can't listen to it without thinking about the village because the score is like <laughs> very reminiscent of that one. Got that violin. Yeah. I wonder if they got the same violinist. I mean, uh, I was just about to try to make a joke about the village and, you know, St. Radigan and everything like that. And I just, <laughs> <laughs> if only France had had the magic rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I watched the village not long ago and I was like, this is like an atmospheric, interesting movie. Like, and you know, I know what's coming. Why did we lambast it so hard? And then there comes the, the village point. is great. It's fucking great. I the, love that movie. I mean, I really <laughs> like it, but like still, like I was I, I literally was thinking, like, I just like can't like this isn't 
bad, bad. Like this is maybe misguided in places, but like there's so much to recommend here. And then all of a sudden she holds, like holds out the bag and is like, we're going to be fine. We've got the magic rocks. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's this is this is where it gets a little weird, I think. I'm a defender of M Night, even the happening, but uh I'm not totally on board with the village. I um I will not def- I have not seen the happening. Uh I have not seen the last airbender. Um I've seen all the other ones. I can defend the village, I can't defend Lady in the Water. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not the village happening. is great. The village is great. Yeah, yeah, no, the village is a community. I think my we're off topic, but this doesn't matter. <laughs> I um the the village. I think I was just upset because the actual story that they set up for the village is so good that to have it be a twist thing makes me feel angry <laughs> because it's just such a crackerjack folk horror thing, and then uh, to have it not be true is annoying as shit. Um. Asteroid I, I found out Rage. recently that M. Night Shyamalan was one of the frontrunners for the original Spider-Man if Sam Raimi didn't take it. And I am really fascinated uh, as a thought exercise trying to think about uh, what the third act twist of Spider-Man would have been. <laughs> I, I have to think it would involve Green Goblin's identity only coming at the end. But that seems like that would, uh, even as like not a big fan of that movie, that seems like... That would not work. <laughs> Uncle Ben isn't dead and he's been pulling the strings the whole time. There you go. And he comes in and says, strike me down and I will become more powerful. Oh, God. Yeah, we need to end this now. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've, gotten, we've gotten to the point where we just start making tangents. I do yep. want to say... Um, Oh, I can't remember. We we did point out that the 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 narration in this movie is primarily based off the letters that they wrote to each other. Sure. And um, yeah, this movie's just it's I don't know, like like uh like Josh said, you know, you walk out of this movie and you're just like, I need to be better. <laughs> it's it's such a weird thing to feel about a movie because even walking out of, I don't know, like a beautiful day in the neighborhood, you're like, oh, that was a really good movie, but like you you could extract yourself from that and be like well i don't like you know i there's stuff to take from that but i don't feel like moved in the way that i need to be like and a hidden life you walk out and you're like ah shit something is happening in my soul now you weren't like oh that mr rogers he's such a bully (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah i wrote like a three thousand five hundred word treatise on this movie on my personal site that basically ended with me being like oh boy i guess i gotta be a better christian to make a better world for my child now yeah it's funny that i can write something that is that sincere but when i go to summarize it i give myself a sarcastic tone of voice (laughs) about my own literal come to jesus moment I am got, a broken, like, I'm a broken person. <laughs> I am so twisted in my soul. <sighs> Any final thoughts on this movie before we wrap up? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll quickly say that to me, the moment that the movie just utterly destroyed me and left me in tears was the, the middle March quote at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's to me the moment that the movie entirely clicks and that it uh, it makes totally evident evident that it's a movie about uh, not about seeking divine rewards, but about 
goodness creating a rippling effect within the world. Um, yeah. And to have that stated so clearly at the end of this movie was to me just like revelatory. And I don't think it can be matched. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I am. Um... That Middlemarch quote, and really like a lot of the movie, um, when I wrote my essay about this, I tied a direct link to Matthew 13, uh, which is the parable of the sower for anyone who's ever been in a church or heard this. It's uh, it's about someone like, you know, throwing seeds out, you know, into their field and being like, got to make me some food. And some of the seeds fall on the path and some on the rocks and some in the brambles and everything. And it says, you know, but the seed falling on good soil, you know, will bear fruit like a hundredfold. And uh, it's that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> like that's that's kind of what that that quote is talking about. Like, you know, so many people are resting in these unvisited graves, you know, never heard of. But like the one that gets through that ripple effect just from them, even though there were so many, is still works. And it is important that so many people live that way because, again, we just don't hear about a lot of people. And so the more that do, the better chance there is that one will break through and actually like become someone that matters just like a uh, Franz Jagerstadter. Michael Snydell, would okay. you like to say anything downer to take us out? No, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say that uh, I really like this film. Um, I will say though, especially it is worth actually looking into the, the context of the real Franz Jagerstadter, um, obviously this is about him, but again, there's a lot of details that are really interesting. Um, and even the context, for instance, of how he became uh, beatified by the church and everything is uh, really fascinating and uh, slightly opportunistic by Austria <laughs> in, <laughs> uh, in fascinating ways. Uh, so yeah, I, this is a good movie, but this, this guy is, is really interesting in his own right too. <laughs> also, you just don't understand why you didn't like the Nazis that much. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is it for today. Um, next week we will be talking about... Birds of prayer, Brad. Oh, birds right. Of... I couldn't remember if Lady on Fire... That's Portrait of a Lady on Fire 14. or Birds of Prey came out first. I, I gotta, I, I don't know. I, I'm gonna say this on here and we're gonna regret it, but we're probably overdue for a classic episode at some point, too. Yeah, we also still gotta do our top 10 of 2019, which is a year that happened that no one oh, remembers yeah. anymore. <laughs> We've also gotta set up for the stages, our award show. Oh we God. got shit to do, guys. We got a lot to do and we gotta do it. And um, we're gonna, instead, we're gonna talk about a DC movie. <laughs> Brian, don't do this. I, I will attempt to be as open minded as possible. God damn it, Bill. <laughs> Not helpful. Okay. Please. What's on this? <laughs> was, time, was, that, was that actually good? I think <laughs> it was. Okay. I think you did a good job just then. But I still hate you for doing it. We've sworn off superhero movies for the most part. <laughs> but <laughs> we watched Endgame and I said, we never have to do this again, right? And everyone said, yeah. And then we ended up watching Joker because, you know, it was an awards powerhouse that won the Venice Film Festival. <laughs> which is a thing that I will remind you of anytime I want to twist the yeah. knife inside of you. 
God damn it, Lucretia Mattel. Come on, Mattel. <laughs> and now we're going to talk about Birds oh, of Prey. And then somehow we're going to get talked into doing no, we're Wonder not. Woman no, 1984. We're, we're, we're done. This is it. Fucking Black Widow. What if this is good? <laughs> Ugh, well, God damn we're it. done. This is it. That's okay. what you said the um, last time. And this. And this. <laughs> anyway, we are here. Uh, LaBelle. <laughs> just because you don't want me to give you shit about this anymore. So, yes, next week we'll be talking about Birds of Prey, the new film about Harley Quinn. Um, Kathy Yan. Yes. Leaves the director. I'm a Harlequin. No, oh, uh, that's God. I, I, didn't, I didn't do it well that time. That's dear, right. dear God. Um, wait, is that the pun? Yeah. Wait, wait a second. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wait, it's in the trailer. Wait a second. Everyone calm down. Michael Snydell, are you only just now learning that Harley Quinn is a play on the word Harlequin? I've, I've, had, I've had bigger... <laughs> Dumb dumb moments on this podcast, so oh, no. it's all good. Okay, we're gonna put a pin in that. We're gonna revisit it next week when we talk about birds of prey. <laughs> also, I can't hear Michael Snydell anymore. He may have committed suicide in embarrassment. <laughs> we are brought to you by Movie, the online streaming cinema. For your free thirty day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, they've got some. Really great stuff going on. They've got Buy NWR. They've got the uh, Destroy All Yakuza series going on. And, of course, they've got all the other stuff that we talked about earlier. Really, really great. Super cool. MUBI.com slash Filmstage. And don't forget to go to Patreon.com slash Filmstage Show to give us your money. That is all for today. Let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we speak to them. Uh, We begin with our guest... Josh, where can people find you online? At Josh Cabrita on Twitter. All right. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me at your nearest DC warehouse on Twitter at Cable BFG. And you can also find me mixing it up on the Slack channel. You're living in Northeast DC in a warehouse now? <laughs> no. All right. Chicago style Michael Snydell. Where can people find you between now and the next time? Uh, you can find me on Twitter where I'm finding out uh, many other iconic characters are actually puns. Ash Ketchum? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I did, you, did you did you Google that? Did you Google? No, oh, fuck oh, okay. off, Bill. Um, I, I'm reviewing something called Timmy Failure this week. I don't really know what it is. It's a Disney Plus thing. Uh, there will be words from me about it. I have no idea what it is. Someone on our <laughs> Slack channel, which you can become a part of if you give to our patron Patreon thing, uh, told me that the Disney Plus original film Togo, Togo has yeah. a use of On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter in it. <laughs> so now I have to see that movie as soon as I possibly can. It also has Willem Dafoe, if I'm not mistaken. And a dog. It's about sled yeah. dogs. We like. There's so many reasons for me to watch Togo, but for some reason the thing that's pushing me over the edge is I love a movie that uses on the nature of daylight. You will have to report back and tell us if the dog dies. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's just the new like ride of the Valkyries where it's like you're really gonna you're just gonna go that hard, you're throwing down that gauntlet, you're gonna play on the nature of daylight. Okay, we're doing it. But anyway, uh, you can find me on my personal site, BrianJRowan.com, where you could read my massive essay about uh, the purpose and power of a hidden life. 
You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram and all that shit at Brian J. Rowan. And you can find my writing and all of the episodes of this show on filmstage.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week. Much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure. You laughing at my end song choice? <laughs> That's good stuff.